Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Today on the pod, we have cartoonist Scott Chandler, who's going to talk to us about his new book, Bix, which is a biography of the jazz musician Bix Beiderbecke. We're going to talk about how he came about choosing the subject, fact versus fiction, and some of the thematic and stylistic choices he made in creating the book. We're also going to talk about a bunch of his other work, including Northwest Passage, Two Generals, Days Like This, Scandalous, True Patriot, and some other stuff. We're also going to talk about comic book marketplace, book market versus comic shop, plenty of funny anecdotes from when I worked in both, and some other things. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. to the Winter Palace. I've been a fan of our guest for quite a while now, so I'm happy he is here to talk about his new book. To talk about that book, which is called Bix, as long as some of his past work, I'm happy to welcome to the show cartoonist Scott Chandler. How's it going, Scott? Terrific, Mark. Thanks for having me. I am, I am, uh, I'm happy to have you. Um, I know that, uh, I had seen you mention online and we had mentioned before we started that, that a lot of your publicity has been disrupted due to everything that's gone on. Like I know the, the big Toronto convention was canceled. So your, the book's been out a couple of weeks, but uh, how's it been received so far? Yeah, I don't have any real numbers or anything yet, but uh, you're right. It's been very weird releasing a major book during a global pandemic. It's, uh, it's, it's a new one on me anyway. This is my really first big book in about four years, and I was really looking forward to going out touring. It's been a while since I've been out and seen people and shook hands and signed autographs and all that stuff that you do when a new book comes out. Um, but, yeah, there's no place to do that uh, this year. Uh, the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, which you mentioned, was supposed to be sort of the big launch for Bix. It was supposed to happen a couple of weekends ago, and... Uh, and like every other show, it uh, didn't happen. So I had a really full June coming up. I was supposed to be on, on your side of the border and a, a bunch of shows coming up in June. Won't be doing those, of course. So I've been doing what I can online. I've been, you know, chatting the book up online as much as I can. Uh, you know, it's just splattering the Internet with the cover <laughs> just to get it in front of people. I'm doing podcasts like this one. Whenever the opportunity uh, appears, I'm I'm doing my best to promote the thing, uh, you know, from here in my apartment. So we should say the book is called Bix, and I will admit this is this is slightly out of my normal cultural sphere of influence because it's about um, a famous jazz musician from the 1920s and 30s. So yeah. uh, why don't you? Uh, Give us a little history of of Bix Spiderbeck and and how you came up with the idea to do a book about him. Well, uh, I got there kind of indirectly. Um, I'm sort of a casual jazz fan. Um, you know, I've always liked jazz. I'm not one of those guys who can tell you who played second trumpet in the Benny Goodman Orchestra in 1937, but I can, uh, you know. I, I know my way around the, the music a little bit. Um, 
And I think of my work as fairly musical. I'm, I'm really interested in visual rhythm and in the rhythm of stories. And I think of my work in a very musical way. So I've always wanted to do a book about music or a musician. And uh, yeah, that kind of thinking just sort of, yeah, like, like I say, led me to, to want to do something that would try to visualize music in interesting ways. You know, something other than just having some musical notes come out of the end of the horn. Uh, you know, something a little more sophisticated than that in terms of using the comics form to really, you know, visualize what music sounds like. And, uh, yeah, that kind of led me to Bix Beiderbeck, who I think I may have first heard of Bix 20 years ago with the Ken Burns documentary. He did a, one of his multi-part documentary series about jazz, uh, back in 2000 or 2001, I think. And I think that was my first encounter with Bix. And I found him to be a, a kind of an interesting and uh, a relatable character. And so when I, uh, when I went searching for a musician to kind of hang this visual experiment on that I wanted to do, I think I arrived with, uh, with Bix Spiderbeck fairly quickly. But he was, um, he was a white guy from Iowa who was really became the first white musician to really contribute to the development of jazz. And um, if you're wondering how that happens, how a, a white guy in the teens and early 20s even gets interested, uh, Davenport, Iowa is right on the Mississippi. And his house that he grew up on is, a you know, just a little more than a stone's throw from the, the riverbank. So um, it was interesting when I was doing my research to go and stand there and stand on the porch of the house and, and walk that waterfront because this would have been the era of the riverboats and all of the musicians from New Orleans who would have been playing on those riverboats at that time. There probably just would have been so much music in the air that it would have been hard for him to, to not hear it. And it was the also the early days of recording and uh, just by sheer active coincidence and being in the right place at the right time his older brother when he returned home from the first world war brought with him a, a victrola and some of the very earliest records to play on it and one of them was the first uh first jazz recording uh so Bix, yeah Bix kind of got in on the ground floor of uh of, of jazz and the recording era and uh, and he's in, he's an interesting character in a lot of ways. Like I say, he was uh, a white guy from a you know fairly conservative part of your fine country, and uh, you know ended up doing this thing that was uh, you know about the last thing in the world that anyone would have expected from uh, from a guy from that that time in that place. It's funny not knowing a lot about his story. Like I, I mean, it's a name I think I had probably heard in passing before, mainly since, you know, he was connected with Louis Armstrong, that it's, yeah. it's funny when you actually look at it, that it's almost like, it's almost like a stereotypical, um, sort of life of a early century jazz musician. It's like demanding father who did not approve of his actions, runs away, joins a band, gets hooked up, becomes an alcoholic even though it's during prohibition and then has a tragic ending dying young. It like 
you know, yeah. other than the other than the fact that you know there's like no heroin, which you know, right. the, it's almost like it, it, it yeah. almost ticks all the boxes. Yeah, well, jazz musicians would find heroin given another twenty years, and yeah. uh, you know maybe Bix will would have as well. And of course, the same story gets played out time and time again with rock musicians once you hit the the rock and roll era, and uh, yeah, just and every other kind of musicians too. So that's I kind of wanted to bake that into the story was this. Uh, you know, this whole kind of rise and fall that Bix goes through is a story we've seen again and again and again. And uh, I really wanted to touch all those bases that, that will be familiar to current audiences uh, that will seem familiar to them. I, I really wanted to touch on all the things that were kind of modern about Bix. And, uh, you know, he, he might have created the template for this story that, like we say, has has played itself out time and time again with musicians and lots of other kinds of artists too. Yeah. Now, uh, the other thing I definitely wanted to talk touch on is um, a couple things that really stand out about the design of the book is that first that it's that it's landscape and not portrait. Um, right. That it's mostly silent, or there's little dialogue. I guess I should say you can't say it's silent in a book about a jazz musician. But there's right. very little dialogue, and I was curious about why um, it's blue-toned, like how you chose blue as the color to use. Well, blue seemed like a natural for a book about jazz, which yeah. is closely connected to the blues, right? Like that, yeah. that, might, that might be a little on the nose, but it's kind of cool and moody and, you know, like the music itself. So that was – I don't think I ever even considered another color. I think I think the art in the original pitch was just kind of gray tone, you know, black and white with, with, with a gray, uh, you know, shadow layer. But, uh, you know, that was just because, you know, you don't want to presume, <laughs> you know, a, a publisher is going to give you color, which is expensive, even a couple of colors. Um, yeah, I don't think I, – I think in my head I was always seeing it as blue. And I, yeah, I, I certainly uh, never considered orange or, or anything. Yeah. You know, it was, it was either going to be blue or gray, and I ended up with actually kind of a combination of both. It's it's blue and gray. Yeah, and uh, about being landscape. Mm. Right. Um, well, I knew from the beginning I wanted to lay it out. I mean, this is going to be tough to people to just hear if they haven't seen the book, but I'll try to describe it as best I can. The book is laid out in a kind of a long horizontal strip of, uh, you know, kind of five panels a page. And when life is kind of normal and boring and, you know, every day, uh, you know, the story kind of unfurls in a straight line like that. When he starts to play music when he starts to play classical music on the piano when he's young those panels begin to bounce up and down a little bit like musical notes would on a scale and this is why i really wanted that horizontal uh yeah that kind of landscape format was to get that to work and then of course later on in the book when he discovers jazz then the layouts start to get a little freer the panels start to enlarge and expand and overlap each other and bleed off the edge of the page and 
all that stuff. And as Bix's music evolves and the music he's hearing evolves, so too do the page layouts evolve. But it's all got to start with that kind of strip, which I can then start to manipulate a little bit. So I don't think it would have worked in any kind of more standard page layout and, and certainly certainly nothing more vertical. I really want it to read like the way, yeah, the way musical notation reads. That was the idea. Yeah, it also sort of reminded me of sort of like a, looking at a book of newspaper strips where you've got, you know, daily, 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 and then every so often you've got a big <laughs> Sunday yeah. splash. Yeah, you get a big Sunday page now and then. Yeah, yeah, those are the jazzy parts. Yeah, and then we, as you get towards the end, the panels actually start to sort of peter out as as things go from bad to worse. Yeah, as he, you know, it's really exciting the first half of the book as the the layout is opening up and, and getting more experimental and interesting. And then as he begins to decline, we're eventually forced back into that standard straight horizontal strip format. And you can, like, I hope people, when they read it, will be able to just feel the change and feel how constrictive that is to be back, you know, back there, back in that uh, format. And then, you know, as you say, at the end, uh, as things get really bad, the, the panels start to kind of disappear, and uh, and hopefully that kind of affects readers, you know, in a real impactful way as well. Yeah. Um, I noticed that you've done a lot of sort of historical or quasi-historical stuff. Is that is that an interest of yours, too? Yeah, it is. Um, I, I definitely got started in comics as being, you know, a guy that had a reputation for not being afraid of a bit of research. Uh, like we were talking before about my very early books back in my Oni Press days, like Days Like This and Northwest Passage. Um, yeah, stuff that either, you know, was set in the 50s or 60s or, you know, with Northwest Passage back in kind of, uh, you know, the 1800s kind of fur trader days. And then I did Two Generals, which was about my grandfather's experiences in World War II. And then I kind of took a break. I really kind of burned out. Two Generals just about killed me. And then I did uh, this seven-book kids' fantasy series when my kids were young uh, called Three Thieves and worked on that for nearly a decade. And that was a nice change from the historical stuff because – you do a little bit of research with fantasy comics because, you, you know, you need to know a little bit about how armor looks and how castles work and stuff like that. But it's it's nowhere near the responsibility or the, the level of research when you're actually dealing with a historical person or a historical event. So that was fun. That that was uh, that was a nice change. And then I, I think. It took me a decade between two generals and Bix just to convince myself that, you know, it wouldn't hurt to go back and do something historical. But uh, now I'm kind of looking for a break again because Bix was a three-year project that was also, you know, a lot of research and a lot of uh, a lot of responsibility and, and that kind of thing. So uh, my, my next thing, which I can't talk about because it hasn't been announced yet, but it's going to be significantly more fun and uh, – and light. <laughs> It'll be a lot lighter in the research department. 
That's cool because I remember I was reading nor- the the annotated Northwest Passage collection uh, when I was doing my prep, and I noticed that like one of the things you said in there was like, I thought it would be cool to draw ships, and then I realized, <laughs> boy, what a what a pain in the behind this can be. Yeah. Ships, like anything else, you know, you want to be specific about them. You don't want to just draw some generic ship like a child would draw. But, boy, when you really get into looking at ships, how much detail there is. and But they're also very, you know, elegant in, in, in their efficiency. You know, all of those ropes do something. And there are certainly people out there who know what each of those ropes do and are happy to tell you if you get it wrong. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I just about went blind drawing all the ropes on all those ships. The results, uh, like, I'm, I'm pleased with the results still. Uh, but, yeah, those, the things like that that are so specific are, uh, yeah, you want to get them right, but it's a lot of work to get them right. Was there a lot of that that you had to deal with with Bix, too? Because it seems like there's... I think I, I think I remember you talking about this on Twitter a while ago, that I guess there are some parts of the Bix story that our guests considered controversial. That I, yeah. That I get, would, would that include sort of his, halluc- his hallucinations, I guess we should, we could call them? Is that like, uh, the, is that, is that the biggest thing or is there other? I will so, tell you the biggest thing for, Bix historians, of which there actually are some, is the bit with the records in the closet. For for listeners who haven't read the book yet, um, there's a series of events kind of near the you know uh, you know middle of the book or so where Bix is having some success and he's sending records home to his parents, and uh, and then more toward the end of the book he is at home. And, uh, you know, at his parents' place, and he happens to find <clears throat> all the records that he sent home in the closet. This is kind of part of the uh, – and they're, they're unopened and unplayed. This is kind of part of the Bix legend that I know the Beiderbeck family really doesn't like. Right? The, the Beiderbeck family doesn't really like any suggestion that the parents, you know, didn't approve of, of Bix and his music. Um it's an interesting. It's it's probably longer than we have time to go into in this in this podcast. But it's um, it's an it's, even if it is legend, it's interesting to me because it reflects uh, a certain amount of uh, anxiety that I think all artists have about their parents' approval. And um, I, I I think if it is mythology i think it persists for that reason because it it sounds true <laughs> it uh, it sounds right you know if, if you're if you're an artist you know and you have parents and you probably do uh, you're you're probably used to this kind of thing or at least you fear that kind of a thing um so in the book i was able you know because i know people object to it so much and in the book i was able to kind of frame it in a way that I hope comes across subtly, but does come across where we have seen him, like you say, have a number of kind of hallucinations because of the withdrawal from his alcoholism. And I wanted to frame the bit with the records in the closet as if it might be another hallucination. So, 
uh, people can kind of make up their mind, uh, you know, as in life about whether that really happened or not. But uh, yeah, it definitely drives certain people nuts. That's for sure. Yeah, because I could see again without knowing any of this history, I could see like certain things that people would object to if they're not 100% grounded in facts. Like I said, the the hallucination stuff. Or yeah, the his girlfriend, you know what did or did not happen there? Or uh, yeah, that's an, that's another one that's a bit of a coin toss for me. Um, you know, it it is in some of the Bix uh, biographies and not in some of the other ones. And um, yeah, I, I can I can kind of see it going both ways, but obviously in the book I came down a little more on the side of of it uh, having happened. I would say as long as the, as long as the airplane story is true. I, I would, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I've, I've never, I've not heard anybody dispute that. I mean, there were a lot of guys from the Paul Whiteman band who, who would have seen that happen. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think that one's true. <laughs> say, yeah. That's, that's the kind of story that you hope is true. Because yeah, it's, absolutely. Cause it's very, cause it's sort of silly. So, so it's it like is. you hope that you hope the silly stories are the ones that are true. Yeah, I wanted to kind of ramp up. I mean, there's once you get into chapter uh, four there, um, there's a lot of stories of Bix at the height of his success, and he's drunk most of the time. And we start out with the kind of silly, fun drunk stories, which there always are, and then you know we get sort of past a point where we get into the kind of you know, ugly and awful drunk stories. And so I, I definitely wanted to present a kind of a, you know, a, you, you know, the, the, the 20s were great fun and everybody was drunk and having fun, uh, you know, until they weren't. And, uh, yeah, I wanted the book to kind of feel that. I wanted, me to, I wanted us to kind of feel that crash. Great. And as we've said, um, this book is about a jazz musician. You've done historical fiction uh, and you've done sort of historical fantasy. And I know mm -hmm. the one thing you have not done a lot of is the cape stuff, but I do want to make yeah. sure that, that we talk about the red ensign. Oh yeah. We, we definitely should. Cause I, I'm, I'm a big fan of that true Patriot anthology ser series. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I didn't know how well known that was south of the border, so uh, I'm, I'm glad somebody knows it. Um, yeah, that came about yeah maybe seven or eight years ago now. Um, you know, a lot of the Canadian artists at conventions and stuff would be together and would talk about, like, short of doing Alpha Flight for Marvel, uh, like, what would your version of a Canadian superhero be? Like, what would your character be, um, you know, if you were going to create a Canadian superhero? And it seemed like everybody had one. <laughs> everybody had an idea. And so uh, Jay Torres, who's a writer some of your listeners will hopefully know, put together this anthology uh, a few years back uh, where, yeah, essentially, you know, a bunch of you know, pretty big name Canadian artists all got to do their characters. And, uh, and, and what was great was there was so many different spins on a Canadian superhero. 
they weren't all just Captain Hockey or Captain Maple Syrup. They were, you know, some were based on Haida mythology. Uh, my character is a World War II character uh, named after what was then the unofficial Canadian flag. Um, so, yeah, and just every other thing you could think of. Uh, it was really, you know, some were kind of comedy, some were more serious, some were kind of straightforward superhero action. Yeah, it was really cool to see the number of different spins on the concept of Canadian superhero that people came up with. Uh, but my character, the Red Ensign, um, is kind of a almost a Canadian version of Captain America. Like I say, he's like a kind of a one-man army World War II character. Doesn't have any special powers or anything, but is kind of more of like a super agent type who... You know, infiltrates behind the enemy lines and and then kills everybody. <laughs> that's that's his superpower mostly is killing Nazis by the dozens. Um, and yeah, that was really fun because I've never really done, like you say, a lot of superhero stuff. Not for lack of interest, really, but just you know, I think my style is not what the you know superhero publishers have been looking for uh, in the time that I've been active. There's been a couple of conversations over the years, but. Uh, Nothing that's ever really materialized, uh, but it was fun. It was it was it was fun to kind of take a, a character like that and and just kind of flex a different set of muscles and and see what I would do with it. And uh, yeah, those 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 stories were a joy to do. I'd, I'd love to do more. And you had worked with Jay going back to those two Oni books that we had mentioned like very early on. What's I mean now almost like twenty years ago. Yeah, it's getting there. Uh, Days Like This was published in 2003, so, yeah, 17 years ago. Yeah, I, like I said, I think most of, this, most of the stories in that book are really – like, I really love that, that character that Faith does. Like, I think she's used it a couple – done it a couple times, but they're always really funny. Is it the superhero girl? Is that, yeah. is that her character? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think she did a bunch of – she did a couple stories for True Patriot and a, and a bunch more for – I don't know. She did that character a few places, and I think Dark Horse might have put out some kind of collection or something, something to that effect of all Faith's superhero girl stuff. That was fun and, and a kind of a different vibe from from the rest of the book. Yeah, because yeah, I remember I got it, I got it digitally when when they came out. Okay. I, I think they were they were eventually collected in print, if I remember yes. right. But yes. But I remember I don't remember if there if it was just online or if it was like um if there was a kickstarter or something like that or if it was just a order but i remember i remember getting digitally first i may have eventually gotten it on print but i know i had it sort of in the early days of digital i guess it seemed i mean it seems like it's been a while i mean it's not yeah. like it's not like going to comicology now where it's you know as easy as pushing a button yeah yeah i i can't even remember what year True, the first True Patriot came out. It was like 2014 or 15, maybe. Something. But yeah, like it was that. kind of a yeah, it was kind of a new. It was not the first one was not Kickstarter, but like Indiegogo or something like that. I don't even know if that's still around. And then for the second anthology, I think that was Kickstarter. And then there was a monthly or sort of monthly monthly ish uh, book through Comicsology. It ran 10 or 12 issues just recently. And I don't know. Yeah, the the publishing of True Patriot's been a bit all over the map. 
but uh, I'm, I'm glad people have been finding them anyway. Yeah, and uh, I guess the one thing, to, I guess to, to close on that, I know that you've been vocal about online, and I agree with you to a certain extent, is the whole, the whole issue about comics in the direct market and shops versus bookstores. And obviously this people are going to be able to get this in their comic shops from diamond, but you know, it's published by Simon and Schuster. So, you know, you've definitely done a lot on the book side. And I, yeah, that's been my career for the last probably close to 15 years. I, um, after Northwest passage came out, which was my last book for Oni, the collected edition came out in 2007. I made the jump to book publishers, uh, for, Two Generals and the Three Thieves books. And that's been interesting. It's been interesting to see, you know, kind of the differences in in the, you know, kind of bookstore library market versus the uh, direct market, the, you know, the comic shop monthly, you know, superhero comics market. And um, there are things I like about both. Like, I, I hope I don't come across as being too down on the direct market, which I think... Uh, serves an audience and serves it well but i i personally much prefer the the reach of the wider publishing market um because like if you like like i really it was really telling when i was doing for about two years i did guest covers for um betty page the the dynamite comics series which was you know kind of a nice uh monthly gig while i was working on bix and, um, you know, a lot of people, family and friends and stuff would ask, you know, where, where can I get these comics? And if you really want to see how messed up the direct market is, try to explain to a non-comics reader how to buy a particular comic. And, you know, you'll, you'll find yourself uh, feeling their pain. You know, it's, you know, first, first you got to invent a time machine and go back three months and uh and and order that betty page comic and um yeah like i say it's uh, the, the direct market is great for people who go to the comic store every wednesday and know what they're looking for and are longtime fans and will probably continue to be longtime fans but it's a you know poison pill for everybody else it's uh you know, it's not a system designed to serve a wide readership or create a bigger one um yeah, uh, you know, I, I I I bring more new readers into comics with one library or school visit than you know most, most comic shops ever do. I'm I'm sure. Um, and of course, you know, we've seen a lot of things in the last decade, like the huge success of Raina Telgemeier, um, You know, com, you know, completely outside of the direct market. Um, you know, that's that that's where the new readers are, and that's that's where the wider audience is. For sure. Well, I always like to tell people, yeah, it's like, like, who do you think is like the most successful person in comics? And, you know, they'll say, yeah. oh, oh, you know, Bendis or, you sure. know, Jim Todd Lee is like, or, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, do you know who Raina is? And they're like, <laughs> no. And I'm like, yeah, because your 11 year old daughter does. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, if you look yeah. up how many books she's actually sold. Oh, but yeah, because yeah, it's insane. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, years ago, it's like I worked in a comic shop and then I worked at Borders, 
Sure. So it was yeah. like, you know, I sort of got to see the overlap, and it's even back then, you know, sort of at the, you know, when bookstores were really popular at the turn of the century. Yeah. And it's like even then, you know, we had two shelves of superhero stuff, and then ten rows of manga, and it's yeah. like, <clears throat> you know, and, and it's you know, amazing. It's amazing how unaware the two worlds are of each other. It's getting better and has gotten better, um, but boy, it's a slow thing because at least if you read the internet, you know, a lot of the weekly Wednesday comic shop people, like you say, have no idea what is going on outside of the direct market. And I will say it goes the other way too. You know, a lot of my publishers uh, that I've worked with in the last decade and a half or so um, are not aware of what's going on in the direct market. Um, some of the publishers I've worked with haven't even made their books available through diamond because they're like, well, we, we have our distributors. We, and we serve this particular market. What do we care about the comic book market? And I'm like, but you're publishing comics. <laughs> you know, these are people who are already pre-sold on the art form. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of that, uh, for me, both of those markets have a bit of tunnel vision where the other is concerned. And yeah. Uh, yeah, they, always... they are they are they are growing together slowly, but a little too slowly for my taste. That's what I always tell people. I'm like, there's good books to read at the comic shop and there's bad books to read in the comic shop and there's good books to read from the book trade and there's books that aren't yeah. to me in the book trade yeah. so it's totally. sort of like you know in the best of both worlds you read everything and then decide what you like rather than only i mean you know it's like only going to chinese restaurants right like, exactly. you know there's a you know there's a good italian restaurant that's like two two doors down that you might want to eat at too yeah and then you also throw <coughs> web comics into the mix right yeah. that's a whole other giant thing that many of us and i will include myself in that are largely unaware of there's lots of interesting comics being made on the web so it's uh yeah there are like multiple comics industries now and uh i, I almost don't blame people for not being able to keep up with it all but uh some people aren't even trying <laughs> well i know i've gone to mostly digital but that's because after 30 40 years of having a room full of long boxes. It's like, yeah. you know, that room full of long boxes now fits on my hard drive. That's right. the size of my, that's the size of my phone. It's yeah. like, what's, what's more, what's more convenient. It's like 50 long boxes or one terabyte hard drive. Right. You know, yeah. and then certainly easier to move. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you keep, you know, you keep the stuff that's important to you because you still love yeah. the visceral feel of reading a comic. Yeah. But, you know, but like your average disposable five to ten superhero books a week, it's like, yeah. you know, I can get them in five minutes without leaving my house from comicology. And then and then I have them and I don't need to worry about it. And yeah, if it's that great, I mean. A lot of times now, the only print stuff I buy is mainly to support my friends whose books they are. Yeah. 
And, you know, yeah. especially if they're independent, you know, especially if they're independents, because I know having been there, you know, I work in a store and been a publisher. It's like, you know, when you're not even at the like, you know, even like if you're below below Oni in sort of the the hierarchy, it's like, you know, every sale matters. Absolutely. You know, and every pre-order yeah. matters. I mean, I was lucky that I worked at a store that was very indie friendly and, you know, and put on indie comic conventions and stuff. But, you know, I know that we were the rare exception that, you know, if you, you know, if you live, I mean, and, you know, if you live in a store, if you live someplace that's not, you know, in a college town or in a big city, it's like unless you go in and tell your retailer to say, one, you have to assume that they actually even look in the back of the catalog. Right. <laughs> and it's like, you know, please, you know, please order this self-published book for me because yeah. I know that if they if, if, if they don't get enough, there's no guarantee that Diamond will even carry the next issue. This is what I'm saying about the direct market is that it's very much designed to support Marvel and DC, obviously, and, you know, everything else, uh, you know, even if it's something from, you know, a major book publisher like Scholastic is kind of pushed to the back of the catalog. And um, and if you like, as you say, if you want it from your local comic store, you've got to a know it's coming and b go in and tell them to order it three months before it comes out, <laughs> which is so weird. Like you're just, you know, unless it's a really forward thinking shop and there are some of those, uh, you know, thankfully uh, you're probably not just going to go in and browse and find, uh, well, like my work, for instance, you know, um, you know, there are, you know, a handful of really good comic shops I could name that really support my work, but you're not just going to walk into random comic shop and find my work because it's not in there. It's at the, it's at the big bookstore down the street or it's at your kid's school library. So yeah, like I, I, I wish all these divisions didn't have to exist. I wish just you could go into a comic store and find all the good comics or, or go into a bookstore and find all the good comics. And I'm sure we'll get there. But yeah, it's a weird. Yeah, it, it's it, it's weird right now. Well, that's why it's always interesting to listen to to Jeff talk about the history of Bone, because mm. it's like it touches like all of those markets. And yeah, you know, he re, yeah like he 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 is probably more responsible for anyone than anyone for creating the bookstore market for comics. Because Bone was such a crossover success that suddenly in the early 2000s, every book publisher wanted to mimic the success that Scholastic was having with their reprints of Bone. So I don't think we'd have a, a Raina Telgemeier without, uh, without Jeff Smith. Um, so yeah, hats, hats off to him for uh, being the first one over that wall. I, I, I really, yeah, I mean... Obviously, there were people like Will Eisner before who were trying to create, you know, kind of sophisticated work for a, a wider market. But, uh, yeah, Jeff Smith kicked the door down. Well, it's like it's always funny when you go into, like, Borders or Barnes & Noble or Chapters in Indigo, if you prefer, to uh, 
that you have like the comic books are in one section, but like the newspaper strip collections are still are still in a different section of the store. Yeah, which is and then it's funny because like there have been like comics that have snuck into that section of the store. Like it's funny yeah. now that like that's like uh, like the Simpsons comics are shelved in with the newspaper stuff. And so are right. the, and a lot of places. So are the Archie books. And I mean, now, do you, do you, yeah. Do you remember when all? Would you remember a time when any comics at the bookstore were shelved in the humor section? Yeah. So, you, like you'd find Watchmen in there, <laughs> and you know, God knows what, because that's just they didn't know what else to do with them. So yeah. Well, like, that's like but, that's like seeing that's like seeing you know the Prince Valiant collections in humor. And you're like, right. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been a big innovation in the last 20 years to even have a graphic novel section at the bookstore. And, you know, we should be thankful for it. But I think the next step is like, I, I would love it if people could go to the history section of their bookstore and shelve with the World War Two books, find two generals. Like I, I think that would be really cool if they could also find it in the graphic novel section. That's fine. But, you know, there's probably people who would be interested in that book who never go into the graphic novel section. And uh, so I think I think that's kind of where bookstores could go with comics in the future. I don't know if we'll ever see it or whether we'll see it soon. If, you know, maybe maybe there's some cool indie bookshops out there that are already doing it. If they are, my hat's off to them. See, I, I think that's a thing where you could do it at a at a indie bookstore. But I know I yeah. can I can give you an example of of something that happened to me twenty years ago now. Mm-hmm. So I was in charge of shelving the media section at the Borders where I worked, and we were like a modified flagship level store, despite the fact we were in Delaware. But because we were right off ninety five, we did voluminous business so during christmas time we had gotten this to tell you how long it was we must have had like 300 copies of one of bill o'reilly's books okay so (laughs) i'm trying to make room for it on the floor (laughs) and but because it's bill o'reilly and it has a tv show it's shelved in the tv and radio section Right. Which, which is fine. But I'm like, I have 300 copies. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to take a hundred of them. So, you know, a, a cart full, a cart full. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to put them on the floor over in the politics section. Right. Right. Bill O'Reilly makes sense. Sure. Yeah. So like an hour later, one of the managers came over and told me to put it back. <laughs> And I was like, she's like, what's well, in the wrong section? And I said, I know, but I said, we, we've, we've got 300 copies. We, we have 300 copies. There's still yeah. a, fl- there's a floor stack still over there. I just figured let's put another stack over here. And she's like, it makes sense, but put it back. Yeah. So, so that's the kind of thing where I agree. I mean, I guess it'd be the same 
logic of if you had a copy of two generals, where would you put it in the library? Would you put it right. with the graphic novels or would you put it in history? Because theoretically, well, you could make a display, especially if you had multiple copies. Technically, yeah. you can't shove you can't shelve it in two, two places, places because it had because yeah. the I don't know if they have Dewey Decimal in Canada, but they do. Okay. So, I mean, so, you know, your graphic novel is going to be 743 point something because graphic novels are 743 point something. Right. So where I put it in the history, which is like 812, you know what I mean? If somebody goes to look for it, they're going to look for it where they're supposed to look for it. Now, yeah. if, you have an end, if you have multiple copies and you can make an end cap, you can get away with stuff like that. Yeah, but it's Multiple like copies. I think is what we need. I just, right. I need enough copies in in the bookstores as Bill O'Reilly has, and then then we can talk clearly. Although right. not at uh, not at the store you used to work at apparently. No. <laughs> the manager well, will come out. And, yeah. Well, we'll uh, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting. Uh, it's like we it's were. An slave... It's an interesting concept. Yeah, it's like we were slave to the little sticker that had the shelving on it. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, and, what I, and again, I understand her point of view in theory, because I remember we used to say the thing that different that we used to say, of course, as Borders employees, we would tell people the difference between Borders and Barnes and Noble was they have 10 copies of one book. We have one copy of 10 books, copy of 10 books. Yeah. So again, when you again, if you have lots of ones, because they always used to be the thing where somebody would come up and say, like the computer says you have a copy of this, and I went and looked for it. Yeah. And I said, I said that's true. I said, how many copies did it say we had? And they would say one. And I said, okay, now here are at least five different reasons that book is not on the shelf right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. One. Yeah. One, somebody is walking around the store with it right now, and we don't know that. <laughs> somebody has bought it today, but our inventory has not updated until tomorrow. Three, it's, it's, been, it's just been misplaced. Four, it's here, but it's still in the back, so it hasn't been shelved yet. <laughs> and, you know, I think there was, like, one yeah. more that I always used. Or somebody's reading it in the cafe right now. <laughs> or it's in this pile, it's in the pile that we have sitting in information that hasn't been reshelved yet. I said, yeah. those are all reasons why it says we have one copy, but we can't find it. So, you know, I said, we can try and look in the, like, the three places where I can look for you. But, you know, other than that, I can order it. That's like, that's, you <laughs> yeah. know, when in doubt, yeah. I can order it. And, of course, now it'd be like... Well, now I could get it from Amazon, and it'd be in my house in two days before your order probably even went through. Right. <laughs> Which is, of course, yeah, then, uh, yeah, that's part well, of the problem too, right? Just, well, this yeah. is well, this is the funny story with with Bix in that I pre-ordered it, so I was expecting it to get it the last week in April, right. and then the last week in April comes and it says, you know, your book is, I think. The first day he said, like, there's a delay and it'll be coming. So I'm like, 
maybe they just didn't have, like, whatever warehouse I'm serviced by didn't have a copy, so they're going to have to blah, blah, blah. So that's when I told you, I said, I said, it may be a week or two because I haven't gotten my copy yet. Right. And so then, like, on Friday, they update it and say, your book is ordered, but we don't know when you're getting it. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's annoying. So yeah. I'm like, we'll update you when it ships. So that was on Friday. So on Monday, it still says that in my Amazon account, but yet Monday my copy gets delivered. So it contradicts what it's telling me online. <laughs> Surprise. So, so yeah. that was like May 4th. Okay. If I go to Amazon right now and look, <clears throat> it still says, your book has been delayed. We'll let you know when it ships. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a world right now, isn't it? I and mean, the funny I know there's thing, lots of uh, there's yeah. lots of bureaucracy and red tape and all kinds of stuff at the best of times. But right now, who knows what's going on out there? And, and so the funny thing is, I talked to one of my friends that works at Amazon, and I said, because I was going to send them an email and say, by the way, my order says it hasn't arrived yet, but it actually did arrive, and there's a glitch in the system, so just cancel the one that I'm still waiting for. But there's, yeah. like, no mechanism right now. I don't know if they changed it because of, you know, what's going on or what. But there's, like, no email, no way for you to send an email to customer service to say, hey, this order actually came. It's not pending. Yeah. So I told my friend this, and he said, he said, they don't care. It's like <laughs> the, the volume is so big. And I said, well. Yeah. When the second one comes, should I send it back? And he's like, don't bother. He's like, if you actually – if you tell them that, they'll tell you just to keep it because Amazon <laughs> is dealing with such volume. Yeah, what's one copy? One, yeah. you know, one you know, book retailing for $30 in the overall scheme of Amazon is not worth their hassle. Yeah. Yeah. Which of course is funny, you know, as somebody who comes from like working in a two person <laughs> where, two person counting yeah. shop where you know yeah, every, where every sale matters. Every sale is yeah, you live and die by it. Yeah, I hear you. Well, well people who ordered the book through Diamond, I found out just recently, uh, are getting them June tenth. If you're a if you're a store or a person who ordered through Diamond, so at least you got yours ahead of the Diamond folks. That's so there yeah, you that's, are. <laughs> That's always the funny thing, too. It's like when you're dealing with the bookstore market, it's like how early or how much later Diamond is getting them versus, again, you know, having worked, having been like the, a merchandise manager at Borders and knowing, yeah, you know, how how things run like clockwork and then sort of the bigger the book, the longer you would get it in advance for street date and you know and then of course you know harry potter was a whole different level of of insanity you had to deal with right if you worked in a bookstore during that time i mean yeah yeah we got our i mean we had boxes and we had like hundreds of copies as you might imagine I and like think, yeah. they came in like different kinds of boxes than we normally had that were just plast that were plastered with, you know, street date is X. Do not open. Right. Do not. Right. Don't even open the box. Uh, 
No, I mean, we, I yeah. remember, if I remember right, we had like a meeting. Yeah. When like they first started coming in and like our big boss came in and said, you know, these are here. There are, before they go on, the day they go on sale, there are going to be only three people who are going to deal with these books. It was like two of the managers and like one of the lead clerks. They're like, they're going to do all of the pre-orders. Nobody else is to go anywhere near these boxes. Because, the, because I, you know, she trotted out the numbers of like, you know, what the penalties are going, what the penalties were for stores if they broke street date, especially on Harry Potter. Yeah. You know, it was, it was crazy. And I know, you know, we had that, that morning, it's like one, like, it seemed like everybody, because it was on a Saturday too when the street date was. So we had like almost everybody working. It's like we had someone at like all nine registers that morning. And it was just like, you know, all of the books were like lined up in the office, you know, on like five or six carts with, you know, the people's names on them and everything. And, you know, they had a separate line to get it. And then I just remember the, there was this poor guy, this poor old guy who came in. He either came in every day or came in like on the weekends to buy the newspaper. Okay. So he ha- so he waited in line for God knows how long just to buy his newspaper that morning. <laughs> and we were like, you know, you know, Mr. Smith, you today, can get a newspaper at the gas station today. Yeah. It's like you should have gone to Wawa or 7-Eleven. <laughs> we would not have mind losing your 50 cents today. To have you not put you through this. That he's is like, customer loyalty. Yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, it's, uh, I think it's I think part, it's part of his ritual. I think they may have, like, I think, like, we told our boss, and I think she may have given him, like, free coffee or something. Or, or like, a coupon for something. <laughs> Should have just handed him a newspaper and shoved him at the door. <laughs> That's like, I'm like, I'm like, if you come back tomorrow after we clip the headline, you can just have yeah. it. <laughs> you know, it's like, because, you know, I worked in, that's another funny thing. Having been someone who, like, worked in a comic shop, the horror of working in periodicals and stripping magazine covers was just like, do we really? Is that a thing? I guess it is. I that's, guess that's a thing. I mean, that's the way the, new, the way the newsstands always, that's why if you occasionally would, like, go, go, like, buying back issues of comics from, like, the 50s and 60s, and they're, like, there's, like, part of the covers missing, like, yeah. stripped across it. That's just, yeah, because... The, yeah, the way the way magazine distribution always worked, at least in the United States, for a while, I think still did at least 20 years ago, was it's like if we ordered, you know, 10 copies a time and, you know, we only sold six, then we stripped the covers of the four that we didn't sell and we sent them back and we got credit for it. Mm. You know, and then, of course, then you start thinking about one, there's all these magazines that could be read, read later, and two, and then you start thinking about waste and everything like that, and then it just makes your head hurt. <laughs> but yeah, it's like that's why you know when you see magazines or comics with like the top, because you always had to like either strip the whole cover or like strip the title. Interesting. Off and then and then send them back, and that's how. Uh, I guess it's 
you know, I think occasionally that I think occasionally Diamond or Diamond's predecessors, I think we would occasionally have to do that at the comic shop on the rare occasion comics were returnable. Mm. You know, that's another thing when, when people who know sort of how the outside world works and you explain to them in comics that like when the stores buy comics, it's theirs. They're returnable. Yeah, they yeah. don't. Yeah, they're only. I remember Diamond. There used to be like a for, Diamond updated their terms once, and there was like eight. There was like eight categories of why something was allowed to be returnable. <laughs> one, no, one was if the publisher said it's returnable. Like that was, yeah. Either before you ordered, so you could overorder and be safe on you know like some big X Men book or whatever. But like yeah, eventually it got to be like, and this was like new at the time that they finally made it so that if the contents of the comic was actually different than the solicitation, then it was allowed to be returnable. Interesting. And you think about for how long you had random fill-in issues and things are not what, you know, I mean, I guess it's different than, you know, the cover does not depict actual events in the comic, but like, yeah, it rarely does. Right. Like, no, but I mean, I know, I know know when I was doing Betty page covers, usually the issue wasn't even written. (laughs) I was was just flying blind. Well, I mean, in the, I mean, in the silver age, I mean, you had, you had the cover first. Yeah, exactly. You know, Mort Weisinger and Julia Schwartz said Superman, it's going to be super fat this month. And then, you know, like, whoever, you know, Carrie Bates or Elliot Esmagan or whoever had to, like, write a story why Superman's fat, you know, or why is there, why is there, why is the Flash fighting a gorilla, you know, because it's the 60s. Yeah, But but now I guess, but I mean, but I guess the change was that, like, if you solicited an issue of Superman that said, Superman fights Lex Luthor, and then the issue comes in, and Superman is fighting Bizarro and Mr. Mixelplick, and it's like, well, this isn't what I paid for. So then, finally, that became returnable. Hmm. Of course, by that point, most comic shops were probably ordering so close to the margin. Yeah. Yeah, we actually... that That was a problem that we had to have explained to us by our owner once, that we we had gotten the... we had gotten the order orders so good that like we were either selling out or having like one copy of a lot of the weekly books so we figured hey we're doing our job right until he explained to us well you know we need a couple left over for either a the people that come in the first week or two to have back issues because we were a store that took pride in our back issues so it's like we were ordering so well, we we didn't have anything left over. It's like, and while most stores, you know, you know, seventy-five or eighty percent of their profits are from that that week's books, you know, you need to have a little left over. Yeah, you gotta have those back issues, man. <laughs> but you know, it's again, it's one of those weird things about life working in a comic shop that, yeah, when you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Among all the other stereotypes that people think about, the ones like <laughs> the business ones are like are even stranger sometimes than the cultural ones. Yeah, it's a weird. The direct market is is weird. <laughs> I think I think that's the theme of this conversation. The direct market is weird. 
awesome yeah. sometimes. Like I say, it, it serves its particular market very well. But it's, uh, yeah, what a strange animal. And it'll certainly be interesting to see how it recovers. That I guess yeah. stores are slowly starting to open. Well, I mean, I guess... Was it? I guess this week is like Marvel's finally reshipping. I guess DC started either last week or the week before. So I mean, stores aren't even back to normal yet, let alone the ones that can't even open yet. Yeah. Yeah. What like, a weird time it's been. Yeah, and then with the diamond shutdown for however long that was, and I haven't really kept track of what's back and what's not yet because, like I say, it's not entirely my scene, but. I, I at least found out when Bix is finally shipping to, uh, like I said, June 10th for for stores that ordered it through Diamond. So I'm, I'm glad they're finally getting their books. And uh, yeah, what a weird what a weird time this has all been. Yeah. So like we said, Bix is out now in bookstores and from Amazon. Assuming Amazon ships it to you, and. <laughs> And Sometimes be, they'll ship it to you and say they didn't. Yeah, and maybe, yeah, maybe I'll end up with an extra. Who knows? That's, and, that's right. And like you said, it'll be in comic shop for people that ordered it through Diamond in a couple of weeks. Um, yep. Anything, anything else you would like to mention, Scott? Before, before you go. Uh, we were talking about my Red Ensign stories earlier, and we should mention that I have made those available for free as a downloadable, downloadable. PDF on my website, scottchandler.com, which is my gift to people during this uh, weird shutdown period. So that'll probably be available for download for free from my website for as long as all this is going on, which who knows how long. So go read some cool, kick-ass Canadian World War II ass-kicking comics. <laughs> There's a lot of ass-kicking, that's all I know. I say, and if you like your, and if you like your Canadian World War II comics, go buy Two Generals after that. Yeah, that's a much more kind and of a completely different historical take. Yeah, in a completely different Canadian World War II vein. But yeah, if you can get your hands on that book, uh, yeah, please get that as well. Or any of my stuff, really. Just uh, you know, I got a lot of books out there. Go buy them. I got I got two boys who like to eat. I will say, yeah. I mean, and I was rereading. Like I said, I was rereading Northwest Passage, and it's like, while I remembered enjoying it, I, there was stuff in there that I did not remember, so it was cool to sort of re-enjoy for the first time again. Oh, good. Because I remember, I remember, because I remember, yeah, this is something I think I've at least double dipped on, because I remember buying okay. the volumes, and now I have the hardback, so. Right. I'm a sucker. Yeah, if you have those, yeah, if you have those individual, it was originally published as three digest size volumes, and those got collected into the nice hardcover uh, collection, later a trade paperback collection. But those original digests are hard to find. Even I don't have a copy of the first one. So if you've got if you've got some of those, they're probably worth some money. Hold on to those, man. They're gold. <laughs> I'm sure the easy answer is I'm sure there's somewhere, but I could not tell you yeah. where. Like I'm happy I knew yeah. I knew where the annotated book was, and it was actually where I thought it was. The others, I like I said could I could be any place. Yeah. yeah, like I said, I was like because I know I had bought, I know I used to have extra copies of two journals because I had given it to 
uh, army friends that I knew. Oh, good. And it's a big gift book. Two generals is a huge, you would, wouldn't believe, or maybe you would, how many people tell me I bought this book for my brother who's in the army or my dad, who's a veteran or my son who's serving or, um, yeah, somebody who likes military history in the family or yeah, it's people are always eager to tell me they bought that book as a gift. Which I love. I love a book that will reach new – like all my work really is kind of designed you know, to, to cast a wide net and bring in new readers and interest people who aren't necessarily into comics. So I, I love hearing that kind of thing. Well, I'll say it's timely since, A, it's Memorial Day here. Uh, oh, right. Below, right, below right, right. The, below the 49th, and Father's Day is – not that far away, so that's true. A double reason to get that as a gift, and like I said, I mean, all I, make I, a great I would, Father's Day gift. Just putting right. that out there. Yep. <laughs> so Scott, I want to thank you again very much for your time today. It was fun. It was a good uh, conversation. Yeah, I uh, I appreciate you having me on. Not a problem. I'm glad everyone go out and buy a copy of Bix. Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will be back soon.